podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and we've got another guest with us today, Dr. Bree Gentile, or Dr. G. Uh, Thank you for being with us. Welcome to the show, Dr. G. Thanks. Excited to be here. All right. We're excited to have you. Uh, Let me give a brief intro, and then you can tell us more about yourself. But Dr. G is a trauma-informed psychologist turned trauma-informed product researcher and designer. So welcome to the show. Super excited to have you and to talk more about Uh, yourself and some of the work you've been doing, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I started out um, as a psychologist and so I didn't start out as a UX researcher. So I have a little bit of a back pathway, but um, I originally got my first kind of like design spot that came into my life was as an intern um, in my pre-doc. And so I was interning as a psycho-oncologist where I was working with cancer patients and their families. And I kept hearing in my sessions and group sessions that they were really scared to go for a second opinion, because if they came back to their doctor after the second opinion, they were scared they wouldn't get good care. And I was like, wow, that's not cool. Like, not only should you ever have that opinion or fear of your doctor, but you shouldn't be dealing with that on top of cancer. And so I was like, maybe there's an app, you know, like I just started drawing stuff on a napkin and pieces of paper and had no idea that I was brainstorming at the time, but was just like, maybe there's an app that, you know, people can connect to their doctors on things like they like, you know, yoga, they prefer breath work, they're okay with cannabis and they like ocean, you know, walks or something, just different ways besides the way that they're connecting on insurance and specialty. And then I was like, maybe there's a way they could also break up with that doctor in a way that's like very easy and not having this difficult conversation. And so I just started thinking about an interface that's like similar to Tinder where you could just like, (laughs) you know, swipe your doctors and just, you know, kind of go with that route. And so it was my first, like I said, my first kind of design thinking and first way of thinking about others in an app solving a problem. And so after that internship, all of my comrades were going off to do their licensing and I knew I didn't want to do private practice, but I was really still wanting to do like the interventions of private practice, right? I still wanted to help people. And I magically found, it was actually my mom. So thanks mom. I know she listens to every podcast I do. So thanks mom for this. Um, She introduced me to a company, a startup company at the time called X2AI, which was um, a chatbot company that was creating chatbots to deliver evidence-based mental health. So I got in touch with somebody there and I was, you know, um, super intrigued by a chatbot delivering mental health. And it wasn't the process like that I was really intrigued by. It was like the actual interventions that the chatbot would say that I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. So I, des- I designed a couple of conversations around loneliness and newly diagnosed breast cancer because it was really specific. And I, I think they just wanted to see kind of like what I was all about. And, um, uh, they were like, you probably aren't interested in a in an internship because you know you're already almost well along your PhD. But and I was like, oh, I'm very interested. <laughs> so I started designing conversations for chatbots, which was like 
whoa, super cool. And I found out that UX research was actually really interesting to me because I started looking at the logs, the conversation logs, mostly to see where our chatbot was like missing conversations. But what was really interesting was I started to find out that like there was a theme evolving, which was that a lot of the users wanted some sort of like bigger purpose kind of talk or like, what's it like, what's it all about kind of talk. And I was like, okay, so and it was around the time of Easter and Lent for me as a Catholic. And so I was like, okay, let's just roll with this and let's just see what we can create. And so we created a, a, a Sister Hope was her name and she was a Catholic nun. And she delivered for the first part, she just delivered some like pings around Lent, like, oh, or how did you celebrate on Sunday? Just tiny things. And then I started to develop her more as a persona based on the user feedback. And she ended up helping eighth graders through confirmation, which was like so cool. And she's still used at the Archdiocese in San Francisco, which is like just like mind blowing because I created her kind of almost as like a test or like a joke yeah. to see like, do people really want to talk to a Catholic nun? And I was <laughs> like, yeah, people do want to talk to a Catholic nun, especially if she's like an anonymous chat bot. So I was like, cool. Uh, so that was pretty fun. And I realized I really liked UX research. So again, miraculously kind of had this opportunity with um, as a contractor with Google to do some UX research, or UX research on their hardware. And I was super excited because living in the Bay area, it's kind of like Google and Facebook are the, the, the Wizard of Oz still, you know, and I was like, let's just see what's behind the curtain. So worked at Google on their hardware. So I was doing a lot of benchmarking studies on their um, keyboards and surfaces. So one of the most interesting things that came out of that experience was when I was doing some benchmarking studies on their surface, the keyboard was one of the biggest frustrations on the surface, except for the Apple which we all know like Apple does a wonderful job at their digital keyboard, right? Yeah. And the great thing that came from there was like, yeah, it was the size of the keys and the shape of the keys and the spacing, yada, yada. But it was making people feel smarter. Like the other keyboards were actually making people feel really dumb. <laughs> and I thought that was like a big qualitative piece of like, okay, like Google, um, our surface is making people feel stupid. On top of it being worse than Apple, we're making people feel dumb. Um, but it wasn't an important piece to the stakeholders. And so it kind of just fell upon deaf ears. And that's when I realized like qualitative data was not really important at, at that team. And I didn't want to stay there because I knew in my heart that qualitative data was like the pinnacle of the research, like qualitative, like quantitative data will, will tell the story, but the qualitative data is the story, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, I got to leave. So I left Google. Everyone looked at me like I broke up with the quarterback. <laughs> and I went to a nonprofit in the middle of Bayview, which is the last black neighborhood in San Francisco. And I worked for $60,000 in the beginning, which is like peanuts in San Francisco. Yeah. when you're buying like, people are buying homes for like 1.5 million, yep. like, closet. So, so that just gives you a little <laughs> bit of perspective what $60,000 is for a PhD student. I was, uh, I was stoked though, because I started to do UX research in a way that nobody was talking about it at the organization. Like I couldn't talk about users because they were our families. They were clients. Mm -hmm. I couldn't talk about, um, a user journey, right? That was like their lived experience. So I had to learn a new way of talking about UX without losing the like sauce of it because I started to create services. And so within that organization, we did like a whole ecosystem brainstorm on like, 
what happens once you go to the doctor and you get screened for adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, and then you're told like, okay, you now have ACEs and you're suffering from toxic stress. What do you do? So we brainstormed um, an answer to that question of like a whole ecosystem. And it was really fun to design that because of course it was like, you know, service designing and all these different journey maps. But it was the first time that I got to bring my skills to the organization. Because I think a lot of times people feel like they have to go to an organization where their skills will be seen. And I think with UX, you have a little bit of wiggle room because it's you're really working with people and how they interact with things. You can go to an organization and say like, hey, I see that the skill isn't here, but this is what I have. And I think that it's super needed for the organization. So I stayed there and I continued to do my work, but I also recognized that I was still not complete. And I started to use, you know, different apps and just kind of being like, gosh, this is kind of busted or like, man, this would be super cool if this was here. And then COVID came. And so (laughs) work stopped, everything stopped and we, um, you know, were home. And then my grandfather actually passed away from COVID in 2020. And that hit me like, oh, wow, a ton of bricks. Um, And so I was frustrated with the news app that I was using because I couldn't avoid COVID. I couldn't avoid that in any of the headlines. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go through my preferences and I'm going to unselect technology, unselect um, like pharmaceuticals. I'm just unselecting all of the things where I think COVID might show up. Well, it still shows up in sports. Somehow it still shows up in like fashion. Of course it shows up in travel. And I'm like, interior design, maybe I'll be safe. No, it it shows up everywhere. And so I'm like, gosh, a news app that every time I log in that says, what topics bring you joy today? What topics do you not want to see here today? Can't I just do that every time I open the app? And so I just started thinking, nobody's really actually doing this human-centered design crap. They say they are but they're actually not like they're actually having five to seven user interviews where they require the user to have their camera on and they require them to be comfortable with things like mural board and moving screens and post-its flying around. And then they say, great, thanks for your time. Here's your $150 gift card. Okay, cool. But what, what the heck happened to the insights I gave you? Like, did you create a product? Did you do something with it? Can I see it? Like there's no feedback loop. Right. And so I was just like, I I guess I'm going to have to change this on my own. And I realized there's some land out there to be claimed. And so that's where I started Dr. G's lab. And I was like, I'm just going to be an advisor. I'm just going to start out as an advisor, maybe a strategic planner, maybe a mentor. And it grew. And I had no idea that there were people out there that were like, Hey, I'm starting this app and I really need some help, you know, but I only have like $500 and it's like, okay, cool. You know, I can give you this much time and this much effort for $500. And it was about being accessible. It wasn't about being like, you know, the, the Nielsen and Norman group that's out there. That's like $5,000 an hour, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's like, everyone's like your value, your value. And it was like, yeah, but this service is not available. It's not accessible for the people who are, for the scrappy people, right. Who are just like, I want to do it right, but I have no idea what the heck I need. I don't know what I don't know. And so that's where I wanted to come in into that space of like, you don't know what you don't know. I didn't know what I don't know. So let's just kind of figure this out together and see what you do need. And let's see if I can be of service. And if I can't, 
let me connect you. So that's what the lab was kind of all about was just taking all of my lived experience and turning some frustrations (laughs) into like a place where people can, you know, either incubate their ideas, maybe accelerate them, but just have a space where they can actually, you know, create. So yeah, that's where I am today. That's an amazing backstory. And I absolutely love the entire journey that kind of brings everything to Dr. G's lab, the advising service that uh, you offer and, and the experience that you give, because kind of like you said, you know, not everybody is looking for the Nielsen Norman group to kind of advise on the UX experience. And, you know, one, that's not what everybody needs. And two, it's not what everybody is is looking for or can't afford. So I want to, I want to pull on a whole bunch of threads that, that you've brought up because I, I think this is just absolutely fascinating, but to, to kind of start, you know, maybe you can touch a little bit on, you know, how your background in uh, psychology and you, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but how that and your work uh, so far in, in what you've done and what you're doing, how that has shaped your uh, approach in uh, advising and consulting and, you know, some of the design work that you've done and and what you're doing and how you approach it with clients and applications and teams that you work with? Yeah. So I'm hearing kind of a twofold answer. Mm -hmm. So one is how do I do, how do I consult with the folks given my background, which is that, um, again, kind of thinking about like where everybody's coming from. I think that it's really important for consultants to think about your audience and where they're coming from, right? So I know that there's people out there who are starting an app out of passion, out of pure passion and their own savings account, right? <laughs> and so I know that those folks are like, I, I have no clue what I need, or they're like, I need this, but I can't afford it. So that's where I come in. And I feel like that's a piece that consultants don't typically do. Typically, it's like, this is my price and that's it. Right. And so I think that that's a little bit different approach for me, given my psychology background, Mm -hmm. which is that, you know, everybody is, is coming from a different starting point and it's my job and, and my obligation to empower them. But first, in order to do that, I have to meet them where they are. I can't empower them from my place. I need to empower from their place. So I guess that kind of goes into a little bit of the design work, but really in the design work is it's pulling from the more of the theoretical pieces of psychology and not the practical pieces that I just touched upon. So, you know, thinking about like the psychology of design, you start to think about the cognitive biases and the principles that affect your UX, right? So we talk about priming, for example, um, that's like previous stimuli will influence your user's decision. So if you put a button on one page, you put the same button on another page and another page, you might be thinking, gosh, this is obnoxious. Like <laughs> I'm putting a, I'm putting a connect with me button on every single one of my web like pages of my website, but that's priming. Right. And so that that's what you need because it primes your user. Um, you know, attentional bias is, is another one where our, the user's thoughts will filter what they pay attention to. So if you have an app, for example, and you want your user to think about, you know, taxes, for example, 
TurboTax is going to have a user interface that is much different than QuickBooks, mm-hmm. even though they're both considered fine tech apps. So um, that's how I pull from psychology when it comes to the actual design part of it is actually thinking about what are some of the, the cognitive biases and principles that I learned and, and how are they being used in design or how can they be used in design, which is like probably the most fun part of my job, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, I think that's absolutely fascinating and, and and probably one of the most I agree with you one of the most exciting and, and fascinating parts of design and product work is uh, you know how can you know some of those things be applied and, and be thought about just in product design and 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 product development I, I guess going along those same lines and, and kind of going back to you know some of the the things that you were touching on and, and a little bit of your your bio that we you know, we brought up at the beginning being a trauma informed psychologist turned trauma informed product researcher what does that mean to you to be uh, trauma informed both in psychology and in design yeah yeah well i just love the fact that you did trauma informed in both of those cuz you can't really get rid of the trauma informed once you've started so that's <laughs> definitely important so um Trauma-informed psychologist has a little bit more of a, of a practical piece to it, which is that you actually go through a certain amount of courses so that you learn about trauma, um, you learn about toxic stress, you learn about its effects on the body. What trauma-informed psychology for me um, was really geared towards children and really geared towards, again, those adverse childhood experiences, which is namely that, you know, there's 10 possible places where a child's trust can be broken as, as from an adult to a child. Um, I don't need to go through them, but anyways, you know, neglect, child abuse, things like that. And for me, that was really important as a psychologist, because from zero to five, we build this thing called, you know, attachment. And that's basically our like foundation to how we go about our adult life. And so when I started thinking about uh, attachment and how that was important to apps and websites, it was the same thing, right? Like our neurons are firing the same way when we use an app that we like as they do when we meet up with a person. It's bizarre, but it's true. If you stripped away everything and you just saw our brain and our neurons firing, it would be the same thing. You know, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, all that stuff is firing around just the same as when you play a video game as it is when you see a, a best friend. So not to strip away all of that, but that is basically what, what I, what I did was just kind of focus on, on the neuroscience and then like the consumer neuroscience of it was like, oh, so that's where like the trauma informed of UX comes in is thinking about the consumer, consumer neuroscience, because that's what UX is all about, right? How do we get people to use something more often? So I started to just kind of take that trauma informed part and be like, you know, I'm a mom. Um, I'm stressed out. And when I look at my my uh, Safari on my iPhone, I have to reach all the way up to the top. This was before the update came in. I have to reach all the way up to the top to type into the search bar with one hand and a baby on the on the hip. Not possible. Right. And so I was like just beyond thrilled when they finally put the search bar on the bottom. So that when I find I could I could do it with my thumb. I was like, this is brilliant, finally. So kind of just thinking about how people enter into this world and enter into an app is really the same thing. How we build a, an attachment in those, you know, first five years 
and it can be disrupted. It can be horrible, but we still build, right? We still heal hopefully from that and we become resilient. And so I just kind of took that with you, with the UX piece and was like, well, we're all still stressed. We're all still having maybe some level of toxic stress. And some of us are traumatized, right? Like some of us are, you know, maybe domestic violence um, victims and we need an app that we can easily, you know, have a safe friend. We have all of our stuff on there. We have, you know, it can't live in a notebook, right? We have to think about that type of stuff. Um, you can create a, an, an, and hide your email right away. Like just things like that, that you can really think about. And yes, it's for 5% of the population. But that 5% of the population just so happens to use your product 99% of the time. And I think that is the trauma-informed part that I always remember is that being a trauma-informed psychologist, I only saw a sliver of folks and that was on purpose. And I saw them deeply, right? So like I saw cancer patients, but I saw them from from the start of when they first got their diagnosis all the way until I was doing at home and attending their wake, right? And then going to see their family. So I, I went deeper and I think that trauma-informed design is doing is needs to do that. It needs to just go deeper into one audience rather than trying to get all of the audience. Like Google will never be trauma-informed because it designs for the next billion users. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about like, what type of places are trauma informed? And I think that's where I started to realize there are probably companies that don't realize that they're holding a lot of folks with trauma. Like Wells Fargo, for example, may not realize that when you turn on your app and you've got all this stuff about first time home buyers and blah, 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 like you have people that just committed bankruptcy or you have folks that like are just coming up from the system trying to buy a home, but they have an account with you. Why, why with all the new home buyer stuff, right? Or like, why with the photos of real people instead of doing like the icons and things like that? I don't always see myself in the Wells Fargo app. And that's frustrating and daunting for me. And I need to check up on my finances, but I will straight up avoid it sometimes because I don't want to see another thing about new home ownership. Like I live in San Francisco, you know, this new home ownership of like 3% down is like not possible. So get it right. You know, my location, get it right. And I think that's the trauma informed part is that we have to get it right. And we have to focus on getting it right. Not just sort of getting it right. And then iterating, but really like get the user in there, get it right. So yeah. That's my spiel on trauma informed. <laughs> yeah, and, and agree so much. And I think you've you've touched on so many so many great points. We talk on this show fairly frequently about the idea of inclusivity in product development, and I think you've touched on a really interesting part of that that you know maybe we don't bring out quite as frequently. And, and this was uh, in one of the discussions and on a blog post on, on your site as well, the idea of emotional inclusivity, uh, that I think you've highlighted or or started to highlight really well. Maybe you can kind of touch more on that. Like, what does that mean to you and how does being more emotional and emotionally inclusive mean to you? And, And how can we do that more in UX and in product development? 
Yeah. So it's just kind of similar to to inclusivity in general, which is right, accepting all backgrounds and all abilities. And this is the same thing. We accept all emotions. We don't just design for delight and enjoyment and enhancement. We design for reducing something, right? Like maybe our app actually is focused on reducing something rather than enhancing something. But to have that type of conversation is a little bit nerve wracking. And it's the same type of nerve wracking that probably happens when you say we need to accept all all backgrounds and all abilities. Oh my gosh, what does that mean? Right? It's so big. But with emotional inclusivity, you know, it's really about putting emotional intelligence into practice. So it can mean something like giving space for your user to learn and practice self-awareness. I was using this awesome app called Fabulous and I love it. And in the onboarding, it makes you do a contract, but you have to tap until it like lights up, right? So you're tapping and you're smashing away at this button. Mm -hmm. Like I definitely am in this. I'm doing this. I'm totally committing. But it was that interaction and that tapping that made me be like, I'm connecting to that emotion of like, I am so ready to break habits or I'm so ready to start new habits. And this is the app that's going to do it, right? So it got an emotional pull from me, but it also recognized that I might be coming in with some serious doubt. Like, I'm. I, this is probably not my first rodeo. This is probably you know, one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, I've done this before. Here we go again. You know, there might be some negative self-talk. And so the design of it made it so I couldn't concentrate on that self-talk. I was pushing this button too (laughs) frantically to like make the like circle light up. So they recognize that. And I think that's a great example of emotional inclusivity is we recognize all the emotions and we also recognize, and here's what's different than most inclusivity things is that the emotions come and go. And so we have to recognize that the joy will will leave, right? Like that's okay. That's what we want. And we don't want lifelong users. Oh my gosh. Like that's something that we don't <laughs> want to talk about, right? But we we do have to talk about emotions coming and going if we talk about emotional inclusivity. It's it's a little different than we talk about regular inclusivity. But this is I hope this is a new conversation that we have that we just have to accept all emotions. It's really important. Yeah. I think that's, it's really good and really interesting because it's, it's probably something that we, at least from, from my perspective, um, aren't talking about as probably not as frequently, but it's, it's an important part of the conversation because like you said, it's part of the overall product development and the UX is understanding the the emotional part of both the the UX and the product and the user experience uh, and what our users are going through and understanding that and being able to accept those emotions and the range of emotions and and being able to both design for that and understand you know how both we can be impacting our users and and what our users can be experiencing while using that, the app, kind of like you were, you were talking about both with like the Wells Fargo experience and, um, you know, with the, the other app, I, I lost the name of it there, but with the habit app that you were talking about, both, both really good examples. Are there other examples that come to mind either in apps or, or things that you have used or apps or software that you've helped 
other people create that uh, have been either really good or uh, that have needed work that have maybe brought some of these concepts together that that come to mind. I guess what what has been some of your experience in bringing all of this together, some of these things that we've talked about? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's a couple of, of experiences that I can definitely bring up that have managed to put the trauma-informed work um, which is kind of like the like the the pre part, and then there's this um, restorative design, which is kind of like the doing, where you say where you recognize the trauma and you say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna design to heal for that. We're gonna design to to repair that rupture, and then after that is this this thing that I like is it's like a magic moment, but it's receptional design. And it's this moment of reception where you receive a product or you receive a service. And, um, Tina Sharkey has an amazing Ted talk on this, but she talks about, um, how, when she was hiking once she, had worn this sweater for many, many times. And it was just this one day she had super cold hands and she unrolled the sleeves. And in there was a little tag that said, cold hands, warm heart. And she's like, I've worn this so many times, you know, but it was right there in that moment that I needed to hear that, see that. And it was perfect because I also needed to warm my hands. So it was a moment where she received the product, which was this, you know, this sleeve rolling down, turning into hand covering, but she also received it on a different level, which was like a hidden tag that like gave a message of affirmation. And she gives another really good example in that TED talk, which is of Uber. So Uber does a really good job at receptional design too, where they say, we know that you're going to need a car. And we also recognize that there's some folks who may be like having serious anxiety of like, how long is it going to be until my car gets here? Especially if they have travel anxiety. So they recognize that and they show you all of the cars that are around you. And so you can see all of them, even though, you know, you're only getting one driver, you still see like all of these like 15 million cars around you. And so you have this sense of like, okay, phew, like there's a ton of drivers around me. No big deal. There's that driver of yours could be totally off the map, right? Like it could be on its way to you. No doubt. That's true but could be totally off the map, but you do not receive that, right? You receive the fact that there are multiple cars waiting to service you. No big deal. You can calm down. So I think that those two that I listed are that, that she listed are really good ways of like bringing it all together. And then for me, one of the ones that I've been loving, I mentioned fabulous, which I think is really great. And it, like I said, it kind of takes this, um, the onboarding is like a story and you're like part of a movie. And so right away, your first name is part of a movie and you're part, you're a character that goes on this journey and the character is a little bit amorphous. So it doesn't look like an actual person. Um, but you still have real like landscapes and journeys and things like that, that you actually go through. And what's really great about this is like, it's a habit, a habit task builder. And if you want to build or add another habit, because I know we all get like, okay, I'm on day five. Let me add another habit. Um, it will make you change your journey. It will say, okay, that's fine, but you'll need to change your journey. Are you okay with that? And for me, I'm like, no, I'm on day 14 of the first journey. Like, why would I want to start from zero on another one? You know? So it kind of, again, takes into this idea of like, okay, that's fine. Your decision is fine, but this is what it means. And are you okay with that? 
And um, I think another app that does a great job is Truebill. I love using Truebill for two reasons. One is the savings part, which is not a fixed savings. Like it doesn't say like, okay, we're going to save 3% of whatever you spend, or we're going to save $5. It will like put in like $7 and 17 cents. And then it will put in like $12 and three cents. And, but at the end, it will send me this email. That's like, congratulations, you've saved $200. And I'm like, how, how did I do that? Like right on, you know? And so it takes out the, um, the work for me because it recognizes that I'm probably visiting this app wanting complete concierge help of my expenses and my savings. I don't want to decide how much I'm going to save because I want AI to do that for me, right? I want somebody who knows my bank accounts. I'm giving you all this information, like do something with it, right? And so they do. And the second thing that I love about it is they'll cancel subscriptions. They'll go through all of your subscriptions and be like, you know, hey, we can get you a better deal on your insurance. Do you want us to cancel it for you? And I'm like, yes, please. Amen. Go for it. And then they do the whole process for you. Like, that is awesome. I could go online and do it myself. Super easy. Cancel at any time. Yes, I know. But that's like five steps that I actually don't have to take. And then it's an additional five steps I don't have to take to be like, is it progressive? Is it all stay? Oh, no. Somebody else does it for me. And then they're just like, OK, we just need your this and this and this. And it's all by text. So, again, it's not like, you know, this person I have to call and all this other stuff. So they recognize that I'm busy and I probably need full concierge. And that being said, they kind of treat me like I'm this like rock star and they make me feel like sweet. You know, Truebill will handle it. I actually call it Bill because I like to feel like I'm some <laughs> rock star. So I'm like, I don't know. I got to ask Bill. <laughs> so I think that those are the two the two apps that are kind of having these moments where I, I still have moments where I'm receiving their product where I'm like, Ooh, that was awesome. Like that was really cool. So those are two of the products I think are really killing it right now. Wow. No, that's really good. So just to, I, I guess, kind of highlight uh, some of what you said, where we go from the, the trauma informed, which is, is kind of like understanding before yeah. to the restorative uh, which is restoring, I guess, for for lack of a to, to to define it by itself, to receptional, which is receiving the product. Um, and you've gave you've given some really some really great examples. Is that kind of the the way that you see it, as far as like the the journey or each of the different steps? Yeah, that's a really awesome question. I still think that that is like the product life cycle for me, that is the product life cycle that it goes through this understanding, deep understanding of the trauma and the experience of the user. And then you plan and strategize to healing that. And how are you going to leave the user better than when you found it? Not because it's your responsibility, but because the user is choosing that. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that's the important part is the user chooses that through using your app or using your services. And then, yeah, like then you start to say, how can they receive this? How can they continue to receive it? Do we have a hidden tag? Do we recognize that their cart has a jersey in there? And then when they pop back on, whoop, 10% off, right? Like how do we make sure that they continue to receive that? A lot of times when folks leave something in their cart, it's not because they don't want it. It's because they're thinking about the affordability of it. How do we know that? Well, because we've done research on that, right? And so 
we, it's not about keeping folks on the page and making them, you know, do that. It's about affordability. Let's give them a pop-up, you know, a pop-up coupon right away, right? 10% off this purchase, not your next purchase, not like come back with this, but this purchase right here, right now, because you're here right now, not because we want to keep you coming back. So I think that the reception part of all of that and and all of that, honestly, the trauma informed, the restorative and the the reception part is similar to what I had touched upon earlier. Mm -hmm. We don't want lifetime people, right? As a psychologist, I don't want a lifetime client. Like I want you to get better. And so I think that's what my approach is really about is like, yeah, use my app, please. Whatever, have thousands of downloads because it's 99 cents. That's great but get better, right? Like get better and stop using it and then tell your friends how you, this app helped you, but then stop using, you had this, you stopped using it, right? That's what I want. I want the story. I yeah. want the story that comes after. Yeah, no, that that's great. That makes, uh, that makes perfect sense. So what do you see coming next uh, for, I guess, not only what you're doing, but maybe for the design industry or UX generally? Um, do you see any new trends or exciting things coming down the pike? Yeah. Um, I'm always skeptically optimistic <laughs> about the tech pipeline, <laughs> but, but what I do see is I see more folks from different backgrounds coming into UX research and design. And that makes me feel really, really good. Right. I love the different backgrounds that are coming in. I love that there's more psychologists coming and saying like, Hey, how did you do this? Like, I kind of don't want to do psychology anymore, but I don't want to, like, you can't unforget, right? You can't forget and unlearn psychology. So um, I love hearing that, you know, there's more psychologists that want to do this work too, because that makes me feel like we're putting more people into tech. And I also love that there's more cross-functional conversations happening. You know, there's more software engineers that are on Discord having these conversations of like, hey, I want to program this, but like this seems off, right? Like this is just not seem right. And so there's more conversations. You know, the Discord channel Empathy in Tech, if you haven't heard of it, is amazing. Um, Andrea Gutierrez is the founder and Casey Watts is a moderator. That whole Empathy in Tech network is fantastic. I highly plug them, recommend them. The other thing that I really do see see happening is like a regulatory arm is going to somehow have to be built for these Googles and Facebooks of, are you really being user-centered? Like, are you really being user-centered? And there's a part of me that's kind of like, hey, I want to create the IRS arm of that and go in and like audit the crap out of these people, right? And just be like, no, Amazon, like you're not, you're not doing it, you know? Um, And so I, I kind of see that that is going to be a need. Who steps up? I don't know, right? We don't have like an FDA of of tech. We don't have that. Um, we don't have people saying like this app is doing harm. Um, and so I don't know, but I, I do see that being a need, and I see it becoming kind of problematic if we don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, I think the other thing I see is that more people are starting to talk about empathy. And they're starting to actually need empathy. So our designers and researchers are needing empathy. And I think that is huge. Like we are building a little bit more time in between projects where we can celebrate that. Like we had a, we had a successful kickoff, like awesome. Let's not jump right into the next like (laughs) weekly scrum, right? Like let's celebrate the kickoff. So I think like, you know, having Slack and platforms like that are allowing us to communicate and send, you know, gifts and things like that, that we can, 
we can have those moments of celebration and, and not be such a quick culture. I do see tech slowing down a little bit in that way of like, you know, maybe five to seven is great, but let's try to get 10 to 12 user research. Right. And that takes a little bit more time. Um, so I think that it's just, it's just now starting, but I do see there, they do see a shift happening. And I think it's just more conversations and spaces like this that you've created, Kyle, that really kind of keep that conversation, keep that train moving. So thank you. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you and I hope so. Cause that's, that's <laughs> definitely a trend that I feel as well and hope continues that just more empathy in general and more understanding both of users and people creating, uh, because that's something that I think we continue to desperately need more of and just more human centered in pretty much everything that we're doing that it's, it's all about the people that we're creating for and that are doing the creating and that it's, we're all people and we're all in this together and we don't, I don't know, it, it's not a zero sum game that we're all competing against each other. Like we're, we're all in this together. I don't, I don't yeah. know how else to yeah. also yeah. say that. Like we, we need to like build each other up and, yeah. and have a, it's, it's a community of all of us and we, we can all win as a group and as yeah. humanity. Now, hopefully we can end that on a high note, but it's, let's be a community of yes. people and yes. not, not tear each other down. Gosh, yes. Let's build capacity instead of yeah. yes, trying to win each other up on how much capacity we can take. Yep. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. G, this has been an amazing conversation. I feel like we could probably continue it for a lot longer. You have, you've made some absolutely amazing, amazing points. And I've, I've written down a whole bunch of notes and different things, but really, really appreciate it. I guess before we move on to a, a last couple of questions that I have for you, is there anything else, any final thoughts that you have on UX, on product development, on design, on anything else? I would just say if you are a new researcher, a new designer, and you want to have more conversations like this, don't be afraid to reach out, right? Don't be afraid to reach out to myself, to the Andrea Gutierrez, the Indy Youngs, the Rachel Deet Kisses. You know, we, we see you on LinkedIn. And I think that we really just want more young researchers and more upcoming researchers and designers to have this conversation. You don't need to be a decision maker. You don't need to be senior. Yeah, you might not be able to implement all the stuff that we talk about, but you can implement it in your life and in your brain. And they're the next generation. So uh, my door is wide open. My inbox is wide open as well. Awesome. Well, that's great. All right. I've got a couple final questions for you to kind of wrap it up. Any interesting things that you have watched or read or seen recently? I just finished the empathy essays and I'm trying to think, let's see, uh, Leslie Jameson, that's who wrote it. So Leslie Jameson, the empathy exams, highly recommend it. It's a really great book. I reread recently the design of everyday things. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> it's, it's it gets a little bit more cringeworthy like the more you, you read it the further away as it gets from yeah. the origin i appreciate it i really do but i i just there's a couple of things in there that i just want to like open up a, a conversation for folks to see like what their reactions are so rereading that was interesting and then um completely not related to ux was um reading when things fall apart by pema chodron hmm. and um you know, when you're talking about empathy and you're talking about psychology and all of this stuff, you, you, you can't not read about it. You have to, you have to continue to read about, you know, grief and mm-hmm. those places and those uncomfortable parts. And, um, so one of the things that I have kind of taken from that book is this impermanence and how it's a mark of existence. And I love that idea because when you're in UX research and design, you kind of forget that like you're creating this static thing out there, like a website or an app, but everything else around it changes, right? Like your users change, your platform changes, your context changes. Um, and so just kind of being reminded that, you know, we're all humans and everything changes, like everything yep. changes. So yeah, those are my, my couple of things. <laughs> so true. Yeah. That's so good. I'll have to check those out. Um, yeah. it's been a while since I've read the design of everyday things too. Good, so good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good. I'll have to, uh, may have to revisit some of that, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely an older book too. So it is. Yeah. yeah. And you appreciate it for its, for its, uh, wisdom and its yeah. sage. Yeah, for sure. definitely. <laughs> you've, uh, all right. Last question. Um, you've definitely given us a whole bunch of apps and, and we'll link a bunch of those, but is there anything else that you have any, any products or apps or anything that you've been using and enjoying or that you've been using and hating, uh, recently? <laughs> Um, so I think I've shared the ones that I've been yeah. using that I've loved. Um, a couple, a couple of my friends have been talking and colleagues have been talking about Reddit as not being the greatest of, of spots. Apparently I don't use Reddit, so I don't know, but apparently when you have a direct message, you can only send photos. You can't send any other media. And so they were saying like, it's almost like you say, Hey, come in, but then you shut the door before anybody else can get into your house. (laughs) And so, you know, I think what I'm saying there's, if there's any platform out there that allows for direct messaging and you're only allowing static images to be shared, you're really stifling the relationship and basically showing users the door because they'll engage on your platform. But if they're engaging because of a direct message um, interaction, they're eventually going to stop because it's too much work. You know, like how else do you share your your videos or or what have you? You have to use a different platform. So anyways, if you're trying to put it all in one, you know, really put the the messaging part, put the media sharing in there and make it you know, really pay attention to what other messaging apps are doing, because I think they might be losing some folks. So, yeah, <laughs> no, that's so true, especially especially now when sharing and sharing everything is so ubiquitous across so many different things. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. across cultures too, which yeah. is so big. So yep. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, well, where can people find out more about you and uh, everything that you're, that you're doing? Yeah. So, um, you know, I have my website, drgslab.com. Um, I'm really active on LinkedIn. So please find me on LinkedIn, Dr. G. Um, that's it. Just Dr. G. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, you know, those are my two places. I am on, um, the discord channel, empathy and tech. If you guys want to check out empathy and tech and get a 
an invite there. I love having conversations on Discord. I think it's a great platform, especially for these types of conversations. So please find me. Okay. All right, Dr. G, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks. All right. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prod by design. That's prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter, Product Thinking at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kaya Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.